Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. I'll be preaching this morning in verses 1 through 17. John 13, verses 1 through 17. And as you turn there, let us pray and ask God's blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask now that You would open our hearts and reveal to us marvelous things from Your Word that we might see Jesus and that our hearts might be strengthened. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord now from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. May God bless the reading of His holy word, and let His church say, Amen. In John chapter 13, Jesus has decided to spend His final days on earth with His disciples. We're in a new section of the Gospel of John here in chapter 13 that extends through chapter 20, often referred to as the book of glory because the Son is now on the road swiftly to the cross. And it is there on the cross where He most glorifies His Father and the Father 
glorifies the Son and accepting His sacrifice and resurrecting Him from the dead. Contained in the book of glory in chapters 13 through 17 is Jesus' farewell discourse. And time, as it were, for us as the reader is slowing down to now a snail's pace. What was once before the busy bustle of Jesus' public ministry and the demonstration of signs and preaching and teaching now slows down to the intimate conversations that Jesus will have with His disciples in these five chapters of the Gospel of John. Some have noted an interesting correlation they see here in this farewell discourse, a great similarity between Moses and his farewell discourse contained in the book of Deuteronomy, that there's similar themes where both Jesus and Moses are announcing their soon departure and both of them are speaking comfort to God's people in their absence and both of them are calling God's people to obedience, and even both of them speak about one to come who will aid God's people in their absence. wouldn't be any surprise to us. Moses has, has been a, a minor character in the Gospel of John, with Jesus even saying that Moses spoke and wrote of Jesus, and Jesus being portrayed as one who is greater than Moses, and the prophet who was to come that Moses prophesied about. Before His death, Jesus is going to call His disciples, even as we have read in this passage, He's going to call His disciples to follow His example of service and serve others. But before they can do that, Before they can serve others, they need to be served by Jesus. The better they understand the way that Jesus has served them, the better equipped they'll be to serve others. The greater appreciation they have for what Jesus has done for them, the more willingly they will go and serve other people. And the more joy they have for what Jesus has accomplished for them on the cross, the more joyfully and happily they'll go and serve other people. This passage explains to us that Christian service is an absolute necessity in the church, and yet is often one of the most underappreciated gifts in the church. Jesus calls every Christian to serve because Jesus has served every Christian, hasn't He? There's no exceptions in this regard. We are all called to serve others in some way, shape, or form. Not a single one of us are exempt. So if you're a Christian this morning, you're not exempt from this. Jesus has called you to serve from the youngest child to the more aged among us. Each and every one of us are called to serve. We, we don't have to wait to be called to serve, and sorry, we never retire from serving in the church. 
We're all called to serve in some way, shape, or form. There's no exceptions. Jesus calls every Christian to serve because Jesus has served every Christian. So it begs the question then this morning, I think we need to ask, how has Jesus served every Christian? Number one, I want to show you here in this passage, Jesus has served every Christian first by loving every Christian sacrificially. I want you to see that in this passage. By loving every Christian sacrificially. Jesus here in this passage, He takes the posture of a servant, doesn't He? He is gathered at dinner with His disciples. The feast of Passover is at hand. And much like you and I have, have holiday meals, but not on the holiday, in anticipation of the holiday, you know? It's like pre-Thanksgiving dinner and pre-Christmas dinner the week before. Jesus is probably doing something like that with His disciples. The Passover is at hand. People are gathering together. They're, they're ready for the celebration. And so here Jesus is taking occasion of this opportunity and spending the time to have dinner with His disciples. Jesus here, there's an emphasis in this passage. I wonder if you notice this, what Jesus knows. That's an interesting thing just to pay attention to as you read these 17 verses of Scripture. We see the first one here. In verse 1, Jesus knows what? Look at verse 1. That His hour had come. So throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus will say, My hour is not yet here. Jesus' mother at the wedding in Cana will say, Jesus, the wedding is out of wine. And Jesus will tell His mother, What does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus' brothers will tell Him to go up to Jerusalem for the feast of of tabernacles. And Jesus will tell His brothers what? I'll go up when I am pleased to go up. My hour has not yet come. But when the Gentiles come to seek Jesus in the previous chapter, Jesus now says what? My hour has come. And as Passover is, is nearing, Jesus knows, here in verse 1, that His hour to come had come to do what? Depart of, out of this world to the Father. The cross is, He can see it now on the horizon. It is before Him as He is traveling down this road. It is before the Savior. And He knows that the hour is coming and nearing for the cross. He will go to the cross. He will die upon the cross and return to his Father. And it is knowing that time is short for Jesus that He demonstrates to them His love for His disciples. You see that there in verse 1, don't you? Having loved His own who were in the world. Well, John has already told us in John 3.16, God so loved the what? The world that He gave His only Son. Well, why did He love the world so much? Well, to call those who were His own out of the world. And so that's what Jesus is, is doing here. That He loves His disciples. He loved those who were in the world. His disciples who were in the world. And He now He has 
called them to himself out of the world, and John tells us that he loves them to the end. It's a never-failing love. And even though they may feel like Jesus' love has ended when he goes to the cross, John tells us here in this passage that this love is unfailing. And every single thing that Jesus is doing, especially as the cross is approaching, and most especially the cross, it is a demonstration of Jesus' love for His disciples. During this supper, there is a betrayer, isn't there? Judas Iscariot is there and he has decided to betray Jesus. And John tells us that the devil has already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. But Jesus knows that the Father has given him all things. The fact that Judas is going to betray Jesus does not cause Jesus a fear that he will miss out on the will of God. Or that he is somehow, somehow circumstances have gone beyond Jesus' control. No, that is not the case. Jesus knows that all things have been given into his hands and that he's come from God and that he's going back to God. The betrayal of Judas, the arrest that will come, going to the cross, all of this is part of God's sovereign plan. And that all power and authority has been given to Jesus. So, with that information, what do you think Jesus is going to do? You would think that knowing that He has all power and authority, that Jesus would snap His fingers and bring down fire from heaven and pour out God's wrath upon Judas for even thinking for a moment that He would betray Jesus. Or Jesus would call a legion of angels to come and stop His arrest and deliver Him away from the cross and that He would set the captives free and, and avoid the pain and the shame of the cross. No, Jesus, Jesus doesn't do any of those things, does He? Knowing that He has all power and authority and that all things have been given to Him, what does Jesus do? He takes the posture of a servant. Gathered at this meal, the disciples have they've overlooked the fact that someone needed to be there to wash feet. It was a social custom of the day as meals were served at tables on the floor and as people would recline on a pillow sitting long at the table in fellowship with one another for mealtime. And just like you would tell your children, supper's ready, go do what? Go wash your hands. And this time, you would wash your feet in preparation for the meal. This was the lowest menial job a servant can do. In fact, it was considered even beneath certain servants. Only reserved for those who were of the lowest status. I mean, this is the most crummy job a servant can have. In an arid climate where people wore sandals, where it was hot and dirty and 
cows and horses and donkeys littered the streets before they were street sweepers. People wore sandals. And it would be the servant's job to wash the feet of those who had gathered for dinner. You can imagine the hush that would have fallen upon the disciples and the shock and awe as Jesus takes off His outer garments and dons the apparel of a servant. And He one by one begins to go to each one of those disciples and pouring water out of a basin, wash their feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. Jesus here taking the posture of a servant. And this sets the framework for them of the other act of service that Jesus is going to do, doesn't it? I mean, if they can't understand that Jesus is a servant when He is washing their feet, how, is he go- how are they going to understand that Jesus is a servant when He goes to the cross? We often speak about Christ's three offices. Prophet, revealing God's will to us. Priest, making intercession and atonement for us. And King, subduing us to Himself and ruling and restraining and conquering all His and our enemies. And those are right and true. Scripture teaches the threefold office of Christ. But we don't often think about Christ's fourth office. And I hope Calvin isn't rolling in his grave right now. There's a fourth office that Jesus has. It's here in John 13, isn't it? It's the office of what? Servant. Jesus is a servant. He humbled Himself. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 27, speaks about this as the humiliation of Christ. We don't like to be humiliated, but Christ taking the form of a servant spoken of as a humiliation. Well, what was it? The Shorter Catechism says that Him just being born. Yeah, Christ is the eternal Son of God. He spoke the whole world into existence. He enjoys the worship of the angels of heaven, and rightly so. But Jesus, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, considered equality with God something not to be held on to, something not to be grasped. But He humbled Himself and became a servant and took on flesh. And so He's born. Just being born. If Jesus was born the greatest of nobility, that would have been a humiliation for Christ. And then the Catechism goes on to explain that not just being born, but being born in what? What does it say? A low condition. Not born... In a palace, born in a stable. To parents who are so broke, they failed to be able to procure arrangements at a hotel for the birth. Jesus takes on flesh. He is born in a low condition. He's made under the law. Submits Himself to the law that He decreed. And submits Himself to it. He undergoes all the miseries of this life that have been caused by sin. He endures the wrath of God, the cursed death on the cross. He allows His 
himself to be buried and continues under the power of death for a time. Why does Jesus go through all of that? Sacrificial love. He loves us. In love, He predestined us to adoption. In love, He brought us from death to life. I wonder if you know this morning how much your Savior loves you. If you're saved this morning, if Christ has called you and brought you to Himself, you need to know this morning that Jesus loves you. He lavished His mercy and grace upon you. In Malachi chapter 1, we read about Israel questioning God's love for them. They had gone into exile. They had come back small in number. And they say to God, you don't love us anymore. And through the mouth of the prophet Malachi, he reaffirms his love for them. How does he do that? It's interesting. Read, you go read Malachi chapter 1. God tells them through the prophet Malachi, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Well, what does that mean? What's Jesus saying? Or what's God saying in Malachi 1? He's saying that if I didn't love you, I would not have cared for you providentially. If I didn't love you, I would have abandoned you to your sin like Esau's descendants, the nation of Edom. I would have just left you to your own vices. I would have left you to your own sin. But because I love you, I've disciplined you, and I have providentially brought you back. Same is true for us, isn't it? We may question at times if God loves us. We may doubt His love and circumstances may seem to indicate that God has rejected us. That He no longer loves us. That He hates us. There are difficulties that we go through in this life. They're painful, aren't they? And it may feel that way for a time. But passages like this in Malachi chapter 1 remind us that if God did not love us, He would have abandoned us to our sins. He would have left us to our own devices. But because He loves us so much, He saves us. He gives His life to die for our sins. He sacrifices Himself in our place taking the form of a servant to serve us. And He can call us to serve others because He has served us first, hasn't He? You might be wondering, how has Jesus served you? Well, He has served you by loving you sacrificially. There's a second way I want you to see in this passage that Jesus serves us, the second way that He serves us is by cleansing us, cleansing every Christian supernaturally. So number one, He loves every Christian sacrificially. Number two, He cleanses every Christian supernaturally. The foot washing is 
is merely an example of what Jesus does for the heart. We see this in Jesus' interaction with Peter who is so shocked in verse 6, he, he can't even imagine that Jesus would wash his feet. Lord, do you wash my feet? I mean, you, you can hear the objection in Peter's voice, can't you? And Jesus tells him, I love the, the play on the contrast here. Jesus knows all things have been given to him from the Father. Jesus knows his hour has come, and yet he looks at Peter and he says, What I'm doing right now, you don't understand. You don't know. But one day you will. One day you will understand. Afterward, you'll understand. And, G and Peter in verse 8 tells Jesus, You will never wash my feet. He can't allow it. He can't imagine that the one that he worships and adores and confesses to be the Christ would take the posture of a servant and, and, and stoop down so low to wash his feet. And so Peter absolutely objects. You will never wash my feet, Peter says. And what does Jesus tell Peter? Look at verse 8. If I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. If I don't cleanse you, Peter, you're not part of me. And so Peter here still thinks that Jesus is talking about the foot washing. And so what does Peter say? Oh, well, Lord, if that's the case, then don't just wash my feet, my hands and my head as well. Pour, get all the water and, and, and pour it all over me, Jesus. I want to be cleansed then because I want to be, I want to be part of you. Perhaps Peter was thinking of some new ceremonial rite. We don't know. There's not much conversation on that. But Peter then says, Wash me, Lord. My hands and my head as well. And Jesus tells him, Look, Peter, you've already taken a bath, okay? You don't need that much water. You're already cleansed. The, the outer part of your body is already cleansed. You've already been made clean. You don't, you don't need a full bath in order to be clean. Just your feet, that's fine. And then you'll be clean. You, you are clean, Peter. Job done. I've washed your feet. Now you're clean. Be at peace, Peter. Although, look at verse 10, not everyone was clean. Jesus here, we see in verse 11, he knew who was going to betray Him. The assumption here is that Jesus, while He is washing the feet of Judas, He knows that Judas is His betrayer. He takes the form of a servant and washes Judas's feet anyway, but the washing of Judas's feet does not make Judas clean. It's an important distinction here, Right? Jesus could wash His feet and yet His heart be unclean. The cleansing that is truly to take place is a cleansing of what? It's not the feet. It's not the head. It's not the hands. It's the promise of the new covenant that Jesus sprinkles our hearts clean. That's what this passage is getting at here. Jesus cleanses us 
supernaturally. And how does He do that? He does that by going to the cross, doesn't He? What is the context of this meal? Look back at verse 1. What was it? Passover. What, what was the Passover? You remember the Passover. It was that time in Egypt. God is delivering the Israelites out of slavery, out of Egypt, and the last plague is the death of all the firstborn. And so the Israelites are to take a lamb, they are to spread the blood of the lamb over their doorpost, and when the Lord comes through Egypt for judgment, He will see the blood of the lamb, and He will do what? Pass over their house, delivering them from judgment and wrath. How is Jesus described in the Gospel of John? What does John the Baptist announce about Jesus when he sees him? What is, what is, Jesus, what is Jesus called by John the Baptist? Anyone remember John chapter 1? The Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sins of the world. This is the perfect Passover Lamb is what John the Baptist is saying. And so here, Jesus is cleansing the disciples because He's the perfect Passover Lamb. In fact, when we get to John chapter 19, here's a sneak peek, here's a preview. Come back in eight months, we'll be there. John takes the care to let us know that this is indeed, the, in, in fact, the perfect Passover Lamb. That all the other Passover lambs were pointing to Him. You say, can you give me some examples? Absolutely. Number one, the blood. In Exodus chapter 12, they were to take blood and spread that blood on their doorpost, and God would see the blood and pass over them, delivering them. And isn't that what God has done for us in Christ? He sees the blood that Jesus has shed. He sees the blood that poured out of Jesus' side and He passes over our sins, delivering us from wrath and judgment. Can you give me another example? Absolutely. The Israelites were to spread that blood. They were to take hyssop branches. They were to bunch together those hyssop branches and they would dip the hyssop branches in the blood and they would use that to spread the blood on their doorposts. You say, how in the world does that relate to Jesus? You go read John chapter 19. Jesus is offered sour wine from a sponge attached to a what? You guessed it. A hyssop branch. In Exodus chapter 12, we're told that the legs of the Passover lamb were not to be broken. And in John chapter 19... The two thieves on the cross, their legs are broken to ensure their quick death. John tells us in John chapter 19 that the legs of Jesus were unbroken. What is John communicating for us? This Jesus, this Christ, He is the perfect Passover Lamb who cleanses us supernaturally he washes our hearts 
You may be wondering, well, if Jesus has washed my heart, why do I seem to struggle with sin? What about the remaining corruption of sin that resides in my own heart? I still struggle, Pastor. Does that mean that I'm not washed? Just like Peter, if we have been cleansed by Christ, we are objectively clean. Notice what Jesus says to Peter. He doesn't say to Peter, Peter, you're now sinless. Your sin nature has been completely eradicated and the rest of your life you will live perfect. No, of course not. This is the Peter who will do what? He will deny Christ after this. Peter's not sinless. But Peter has been cleansed supernaturally. His heart has been changed. And that's what happens when God calls us to Himself. He sprinkles our hearts clean and we are clean. We are set apart unto Him. Made holy. We become saints, don't we? And yet, in this life, just like Peter, we struggle against the remaining corruption of sin in our hearts. But that doesn't mean that God has turned His back on us or that He no longer loves us. In fact, He loves us so much, He continues to cleanse us. He loves us so much that the difference between Christ on the cross and in Egypt is in Egypt, when God saw the blood on the doorpost, He delivered those firstborn sons from His judgment. But when Christ was upon the cross and the Father saw the blood, He poured out His wrath and judgment upon His own Son. Why did He do that? Because He loves you and I sacrificially. And so that you and I might be cleansed supernaturally. In light of this great work, what does He call us to do? Come back next week and I'll tell you. That is all the time that I have today. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Let's pray.